0: So uh, we've been here for a while, <clears throat> International Buddhist Meditation Center, since 1970. And as you can tell, it's just a house, so you can walk by it and not even see it if you're not looking. Uh, and that's how a lot of Buddhist centers start in, in the urban environment. They just buy a house, uh, get a monk in there, and the people come and they you know, practice, and uh, a and community is formed. And then sometimes they get a lot of money, and they build a million-dollar temple. We never went there. We just stayed here. So we have five houses all together, one across the street and four side by side here. And we have residents that live here, and the residents pay rent to live here. And that's how we stay in business. Um, the founder was a, uh, a Buddhist monk from Vietnam, and, and he realized that Americans probably wouldn't support the temple in the way the Asian counterparts do. And so. But he figured they'd pay rent. Mm-hmm. And so it works out fine. I've got some questions that, that uh, a Sunday school uh, group asked me. So I thought I could maybe start with that. And, and that might cover a lot of territory. And then if you guys have any questions too, you know, about me or Buddhism or uh, why we're the way we are. you yeah. And that's the hardest part, hardest question to answer. <clears throat> so the first question is, how long have you been practicing your religion? Um, so this is my second religion. That's almost my third religion. So I was born a Lutheran, uh, by no fault of my own. And then um, I became an agnostic when I was in high school, because it was cool to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. And and then I turned 30 and realized I'd be dead soon, because people over 30 die quickly. And so I decided to get a religion so I could die well. So this was in 1979 that I read a book by Houston Smith called World Religions, and the chapter on Buddhism made a whole lot of sense, and I started coming here. I found this place in a phone book and started coming here. Remember the phone book yeah <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and it's just and so it just sort of made sense to me. It was a very logical choice on my part. I tend to be more secular humanist and a little less religious, uh, somewhat spiritual, but spiritual is is different from religious, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just started to practice, having no idea that I would end up dressing funny and and living in Koreatown. Um, But um, it sort of just happens sometimes, when you start to take your religion too seriously, that it changes you, and you don't change it. Most people want to change their religion. They want to make it more comfortable. So they leave stuff out, or they add stuff, and then make it just perfect. But then they never change. They're always the same. So um, I changed, and much to my surprise, and, uh, and uh, people say, well, how did your family feel about it? And, um, and my father was, uh, has a German background, uh, Lutheran, and so he knew I was going to hell. And so we never talked about religion after I became a Buddhist, but my mom, and this is the best part about moms, uh, she was happy because I was happy and so and she didn't care and then she used to send me articles on the Dalai Lama which I thought was really cute (laughs) to make me feel good so she liked him Um, this is really a good question and you you probably had this in mind Uh, so the Sunday school said what do you believe to be true about God and what is your relationship with God isn't that a great question um I don't know what's true about God. I, I've never given it very much thought. And I don't have a relationship with God. He may have one with me. She may have one with me. It may have one with me. But I don't know. So can you have a religion without God? The question would come up. And, and Buddhism says, yeah, yeah. And, and so we're non-theistic. We're non-God-based and and our focus is on suffering why do we suffer as humans is there a way we can transcend our suffering and find a state of acceptance and peace in this chaotic and really complicated world and so as a buddhist we never blame god for our suffering and as a buddhist we never ask god to end our suffering isn't that weird And every time I go to the Catholic high school and see Jesus on the cross, I'm going, man, suffering. You know? And every time I see the Buddha sitting here quietly with that little half smile on his lips, I'm going, yeah, peace. Yeah, I like that. So, do we deny that God exists? No. A lot of Buddhists believe in God, I do not not because of Buddhism though, but because probably they're in America and it's on every dollar bill. <laughs> and, and do Buddhists not believe in God? I have met some Buddhists who don't believe in God but they don't have a very good reason for it and they seem to be a bit angry. And then I have met most Buddhists who don't think about it too much. They don't really care. It's not part of our practice. We're not trying to create a relationship with the Supreme Being. Or higher power. What we're trying to do is find out who we are, and and once we do that, maybe we can end our suffering. I can't tell you who we are though. That takes twenty years of practice. Uh, If you have religious services, what are they like? They're really boring. (laughs) You know, like you guys sat down on the ground and meditated, hoping to achieve jhana, and you know, so so a bunch of Buddhists sit down alone together. Quietly watching thoughts arise and not pass away, wondering what the purpose of this, you know, excruciating posture is when their knees start to hurt and their back's a little uncomfortable and their mind is always agitated. Why would we do that? And then we chant, not in a very pleasant way. We have this sort of like, you know, pattern and it's just sort of a cadence and there's no melody. It's not much fun. And sometimes we have like really weird things that we chant that make no sense at all. And you say to yourself, why would people chant this stuff? What's the purpose? Would you like to hear one of those nonsensical chants? Just to... I'll, I'll read it rather than chant it. This is one of my favorite ones. Because it really... This is the essence of Mahayana Buddhism. This particular sutra has... Profound wisdom has an ultimate reality located in it. And you chant this, and you think about this, and you ingest this, and in a few years you start to get a little hint about what it means, and then in a couple more years you go, wow, that is really profound, and you can hardly wait to tell all your friends and family what you've come to understand, and then you read them this sutra and they go, What the hell? So this is called the Heart Sutra. Have you heard of the Heart Sutra? Okay, here we go. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajna Parmita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness, emptiness does not differ from form. Form then is emptiness, emptiness then is form. Sensation, perception, volition and consciousness are also like this. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. Therefore, with an emptiness there is no form no sensation perception volition or consciousness no eye ear nose tongue body or mind no form sound smell taste touch or dharmas no realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness no ignorance and no ending of ignorance till we come to no old age and death and no ending of old age and death no suffering origination extinction or path no wisdom and no attainment with nothing to attain because the Bodhisattva follows Prajnaparamita the mind has no hindrance having no hindrance there is no fear and far from all fantasy there is dwelling in Nirvana because all Buddhas of the three times follow Prajnaparamita they gain complete and perfect enlightenment therefore know that the Prajnaparamita is the great holy mantra the great bright mantra, the wisdom mantra, the unequaled mantra which can destroy all suffering, truly real and not false. So he gave the Prajnaparamita mantra which goes Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasamgate, Bodhisattva. Huh? Is that cool or what? So what do you think it means? Any idea? Okay. It's talking about emptiness. And emptiness is, is, is the highest reality that we have in Buddhism. In Christianity, God would be the highest reality, perhaps. And some think of God as one, the one, the one God. Buddhism goes one step further. It doesn't stop at one. Buddhism says, no, one is not the ultimate. Zero is the ultimate. Zero is the basis for all life. Zero is the ground in which we stand all the time. Zero allows everything to change, which allows us to grow and have new experiences and become different people and ultimately die. With no zero, nothing can exist. With no emptiness, none of us can exist. And you go, yeah, okay, but it's a tough one to get. It's a tough one to understand uh, and when you start to see how profound it is, there's really nothing to say. And that's why we sort of sit quietly, because there's nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you come here today expecting me to say something, so it's wonderful. So I get a chance to say all sorts of stuff, and it's all relative reality. It's all dualistic and intellectual. But what you did before you came here, that, that those few quiet moments you had... That was the ultimate experience of being a human being. And that's why we try to do that, to to remember where we came from, to remember where we're headed and going back to. Okay, next question. Uh, Is there anything that is forbidden or that you cannot have or do in your religion? No. Nothing is forbidden. Isn't that cool? We can do anything we want, anytime we want. And there's no justice in Buddhism. There's no divine lawgiver to cause us great uh, pain and suffering. But we have something called karma, the cause and consequence of what we think, say, and do. Karma never forgets, karma never forgives. So you can do anything you want, but there are always consequences. Always. I posted on my Facebook page a little picture of Michael Vick. Remember Michael Vick? <laughs> oh yes. He's now a jet. So keep him away from your pet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good <laughs> <idea>. <laughs> and, and somebody posted uh, on the picture, uh, on the comments, saying, "Well." You know, he already did his time, he already paid for what he did, give him a break. But you know, those are human laws, right? And those are human penalties, and that's something we came up with arbitrarily, you know? Two people can do the same crime and and do different time. It's really arbitrary. Is there a law greater than the human law? Is there a law greater than the law of man or woman who decides the fate of other men and women? Is there sort of a cosmic law, or the law of God, or the book? Is there a law that that supersedes, transcends? Has Michael Vick completed his karma? Are all the consequences now taken care of, or will other consequences arise? Remember Tiger Woods, One of the best golfers in the whole world. And what happened to him? Lust. You know what happened after the lust? He lost his mojo. Karma? Maybe so. You know, he didn't go to jail. He didn't do any time. But something changed dramatically in his life. And so a Buddhist would say, yeah, you can do anything you want, but there's always a consequence to everything you do. And sometimes if you're you're generous and compassionate and wise, the consequence is really good and benefits you and all that's around you. But sometimes if you're really unskillful and have hatred and anger, uh, greed and lust, those consequences manifest too. And then your life is not as comfortable or is not as happy as it used to be. So we're always sort of taking responsibility in a way for everything we do. And if we're having a bad day, it's generally because of us. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of a bummer because there's an accountability that we can't sidestep or get away from. We just go, yeah, what the hell did I do? Why am I suffering today? Why can't I find a parking place? What's wrong with my karma? And then all of a sudden, you have a pleasant thought, you let somebody go through the crosswalk, and there's the parking place. Oversimplification. But you know, life is magical. And sometimes it does work like that. So we are aware... Of what we think through our meditation and we are aware of what we say and do because of the precepts we take when we become a Buddhist so if you become a Buddhist you're required to take five training precepts and these precepts are designed to change what you say and what you do so let me share with you what those are the first precept we take is not to take life now it's like all life you know, and it, it, it's really hard not to kill anything. I don't know if you've experienced it, but have you ever had a cockroach? Uh-huh. And then you said, "Well, I'm just going to kill the guy because it's not supposed to be here, and they're dirty and have you know disease." But a Buddhist would say, "You know, is there something else we can do with the cockroach? Can we catch it and take it outside?" Yeah, somebody. Out? Yeah. He threw uh. it in the trash can instead. But it was alive. Yeah, and probably eating lunch right now, you know? (laughs) Probably. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So when you take the precept not to take life, what you're doing now is you're starting to see how valuable life is. And, And life is remarkable. Think about your own life. You haven't ever been here before. This is your very first time. For all the billions of years that Earth might have been here, depending on your religion and your science... You weren't here. So what happened? How did you get here? People ask me that all the time. Why are you here, Kusla? My answer is, my parents had sex and I had karma. Those two things came together and I showed up. It surprised the heck out of me. Then we have to go. Of all the time you weren't here, you're only here 50, 60, 70 years, and then you're not going to ever be here again. For the rest of eternity, however long that is. Whoa, how precious is this human life of ours? How rare it is to be born. And right now we have 7 billion humans walking on this earth. We're really doing a good job of creating humans. But you know what we're also doing a really good job of? Killing animals. Do you know how many billions of animals we kill every year so we can eat? sometimes up to 20 billion. Mass killing slaughters, keeping them in primitive pens and uncomfortable and little piglets cutting off their tails. and just It's just so gruesome. And when you go to Vons or Ralphs, it's so, you know, the music is playing in the background. It's packaged in yellow plastic and it looks so appetizing. Maybe not yellow, but... It looks really good. And and we and we have really weird names for this stuff, like bacon. What the heck is bacon? Isn't it pig? And we have filet meal. New York cut. Round round. All these euphemisms to hide the fact they're eating all these creatures. And isn't it a shame that we have to kill and eat things that were all that were alive at one time? So we can sustain our life. Can you see the paradox of that? Can you see the cruel joke that the cosmos played on us? That in order for us to live, we have to kill. So we can live ourselves. And then in the old days, before we were so smart and had all the weapons, we got killed. Dinosaurs. Maybe not dinosaurs because we weren't there, but big animals would kill us. Why? Because they were hungry. They didn't hate us. They didn't even know who we were they saw us as like food <laughs> all day every day death and destruction birth and creation whoa so a Buddhist would say okay today I'm going to practice not taking life and so then you start your day and you might not kill the cockroach you know you see the cat trying to chase a hummingbird you might chase the hummingbird away so the cat will get it you know then it's time to eat. And you say, well, maybe I'll go to Chapote. You know, they're getting rid of the GMOs, you know that? They're going to have pinto beans that aren't genetically modified. How cool will that be? <laughs> and, and so you go there and then you say, well, should I be vegetarian today or should I have sentient beings on my food? Yes, could you give me sentient beings, the shredded kind, please? And maybe a little sour cream on top. Oh, But it's a cow with those big brown eyes that never hurt anything in its life. So it's a radical change of perspective when you say to yourself, today I'm going to practice not taking life. See how it goes. Maybe you could just do it one day. See if you can make it through the whole day without killing anything. You know? You'd be surprised how easy it is to kill. Especially mosquitoes. Those little suckers, you know, <laughs> and and you know, and you just you just don't want to, you know, donate your blood to them. You'd rather they, you know, and just wow. so it's a lifelong practice. Second precept we take is not to take what is not given. Even more than stealing, it's not just stealing. If you, if you didn't get it because of a gift or because of consent, you can't use it. You're going by and you see a newspaper on the table that's Starbucks and you just like to read it and you browse through it, you can't touch it if you're Buddhist. Until somebody says would you like to read the newspaper? Then you don't. Isn't that a trip? <laughs> so how many, how many things do we just use because we think it's okay? Like you go to Denny's and there's ketchup on the table and you use the ketchup? Did you ask the waitress if it was okay to use the ketchup? You just assumed it was there for you the to use, but you, you really don't know third precept we take is not to indulge in sexual misconduct wow this is a tough one because you know what in LA everything is okay so what do you do how do you not do it what's important you know and and once the box is open that Pandora's box of uh, desire and craving it never closes again it's always going to stimulate you and all the things that you do whether you know it or not so the Buddha said there are a couple things you should never do first thing you should never do is have sex with people who are married makes sense doesn't it how many people do that all the time second thing do not have sex with people who are engaged third thing do not have sex with children fourth thing do not have sex with people against the will that's it you would think every Buddhist could hold those precepts and never break one. No, they break them all the time. It's a mental and physical discipline that's necessary to follow those precepts. But how about Buddhist monks? Unlike Protestant ministers or pastors, Buddhist monks are celibate. And, and it's not a penalty. It's actually sort of a blessing people ask me you know you don't have any children you don't have a wife how do you feel about that i say grateful <laughs> think how simple my life is <laughs> so a buddhist monk is celibate for two reasons number 1 we need to lead a life of simplicity because we live on donations people give us food they give us money they give us a place to stay we live on donations and it is really difficult to support one human being. You know, you gotta get a place to live, you gotta buy clothing, you gotta buy food, you gotta have medical care. It's a lot of money. Just one person, one human. I take care of eight cats. It's 100 a hundred bucks a month to take care of eight cats. Are you kidding me? That's nothing. One human, a hundred bucks in an hour. So we need to have a life of simplicity so we can be supportable. And the Buddha said, as soon as you have a wife, you're going to have kids, you're going to have a house, you're going to have car payments, you're going to have college tuition, you're going to have to send a donation bowl around five or six times every day just to meet your expenses. Keep it simple, he said. But the second reason Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate is the most important reason at all. When you're in an intimate relationship, you can be happy and fulfilled, and you can be in love, but there's one thing you'll never be. What do you think that is? It's a tough one. Let me tell you. One thing you'll never be is free. (laughs) Free. Who wants to be free? Not very many people. So as a Buddhist monk or nun, we follow celibacy. And then you say to yourself, well, you must suffer a lot less than people who are married or in relationship. And I say, no. We just suffer in a different way. That's all. No one gets out of suffering. Questions or comments so far? Any of this sound familiar? Yeah, you said people don't want to be free. Uh-huh. I would I would disagree. I would okay. Say that do you want to be free? Yes. Why? Because to me, freedom is equated with doing what I feel is right and feel that I have um, liberty to do. But I don't know. I don't think that being confined and constrained is... Being free. Right. Okay, so it's more free to do what you want rather than to do what you aren't supposed to do? I think so. Okay. And do you know what's right and wrong yet? No, I'm still learning that and I think I'll never fully comprehend that, but I think most people, no matter how long they live, will never fully comprehend that. Because why? Because it's arbitrary. Do you know in nineteen seventy eight When I was driving on the L.A. freeways, you could not drive any faster than 55 miles an hour. Why was that? Oil embargo. We had odds and even days when we could buy our gasoline. Oh, interesting. It was wrong to go over 55. Now, if you go 55 on the freeway, they honk at you, they have road rage at you. So right and wrong oftentimes is arbitrary. And by consensus, this is going to be radical, but Anwar Sadat the uh, who used to be president of Egypt. he said the freest time of his life was when he was in prison. He had more freedom in prison than he did as president of egypt now isn 't that just the darndest thing we must have- Yeah, absolutely. So, what would be the definition of freedom for a Buddhist? What do you think? It's a tough one. You want me to to tell you that? Or are you you getting close? I mean, I'm thinking about it, but maybe being in a state of no needs, no need. Okay. Like simplicity. Simplicity. Okay. Oh, it, it, that's close. It's, that's close. A, a better answer would be freedom from suffering. From suffering. Yeah. Okay. That's it. So everything we do, everything we think about, everything we say, is designed to bring us to a place of freedom from suffering. Okay. You'd think in jail that you would suffer some... You would in the think... In sense of the word. No, you would think that would be the case, you, you, wouldn't you? you think in jail it would be just terrible, um, and it is. A, I, I was a, a volunteer in a state prison for a year, mm-hmm. and I volunteered at Juvenile Hall for five years, mm-hmm. and it's a terrible place to be. But they have three meals a day at medical care. They have a roof over their head. They don't have to do too much. <laughs> and you go to, out in this world, and there's nothing is guaranteed out here. Isn't it? And so you're, you, got, you got this sort of fear and this dread and this unease about how you're going to make it all work. Can you find a job? Is there a place to live? Like, I'm really hungry. I don't have any money for food. You get all this stuff going on all the time. And so rather than being free, you're always thinking about survival. Right, but because you have so many options and there are so many variables in your life, does that equate to freedom? It affects it affects your freedom absolutely. Because you're never really sure which one is the best option. Yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. You just hope what you're choosing is the best choice. You know, but, and then time will tell. The fourth precept that we take is not to speak unskillfully. Not to use false speech, harsh speech, malicious speech, and not to get involved in gossip or idle chatter. So we can't watch TMC. <laughs> so, we, so we understand how important speech is. And the fifth precept, the hardest precept of all. You think the other four were tough? The fifth one's the toughest one. We take the precept of not to become intoxicated. I ain't drunk, i just been drinking. Not to become intoxicated. So what's wrong with being intoxicated? Doesn't everybody get high? Can't we all go to Colorado and just get stoned now? <laughs> yeah. For a Buddhist, the problem with being high is it steals your wisdom, you end up doing stupid things, and you cause more suffering rather than less suffering. That's it. That's the only reason. In German, they say beer is food, and it does. It's, it's more nutritional than Coca-Cola. You go to Italy, they get the wine with all the meals. Really nice. But the Buddhist would say, yeah... But once intoxication sets in, you're stupid. And you could go to Azusa Pacific, get a master's degree, and be illiterate after a case of beer. Not even put together a good sentence. <laughs> Let alone drive a car. Five precepts, those are we call those training precepts, the precepts we want to practice every day so we can live in harmony with other human beings on this earth. Please. So as a Buddhist, would you not take a night Ny- NyQuil if you're sick? You would take NyQuil if you're sick. Okay. Though I would take another medication. Okay. But um, I sort of like Advil, cold and sinus, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> it, the Buddha said we have four requisites as a human being. They are food, shelter, clothing, medicine. How smart was the Buddha? Congressmen, senators, some of them don't even know medicine is a requirement. You know what I'm saying? Obamacare. The first step. Medicine. So we don't have to die when we get sick. You know? So the Buddha came out a long time ago and the medicine they had back then was terrible. Herbs and spices mixed with urine. If it didn't kill you... You might get well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I just think that's interesting because they had that sort of medicine. Yeah. And you speak of intoxication, and you uh, said, for example, uh, getting high. Getting high. But that would be a medicine in another time, in another culture, marijuana. So, I mean, I would just. It's a medicine in Los Angeles. There's a one right down the street. Uh Big green cross. Guard with a gun outside. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. Medicine takes many forms. But if you're taking marijuana as a medicine, it's a different mindset than smoking marijuana to get high. And and so and alcohol can be a medicine of sorts. It can it can relieve tension and anxiety and blah blah blah. So, so you can see how they have varied uses, but um, a lot of people just take that stuff to get high. And why would you want to get high? Isn't life the biggest trip of all? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It manifests every moment for the first time. You've never done this before. This is a trip. It's just all... You know, there are in the colors, and, and none of this stuff is real. You're making it up as you go. All the information is going through your sense stories. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And you're creating a story. You're including all of us today. Here you are. The guy's talking. There's a cat. None of this is what you think it is. How cool. So why get high? I don't understand it. But I'm old now, so it's okay. I get high on chocolate. I'm sorry. that's. It. You actually can. You can, I know. <laughs> yeah, except by the time that you eat enough, you probably throw up. So. Or start the downtrend of yeah. going yeah. into depression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, it's scientifically proven. What is the most important point of your religion? The most important point of our religion is nirvana. That is what every Buddhist is trying to achieve. What is nirvana? Nirvana is the end of suffering while you're alive. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Now you know how how amazing that is? Because as a Buddhist, we believe that there is no beginning. So we don't have a first cause. We don't have to care about the big bang theory or god or the flying spaghetti monster it doesn't matter to us no first cause and there's no end it just keeps arising existing and passing away arising existing and passing away and every time we're reborn we lose friends and relatives to death sometimes we starve and get terrible diseases And then we die we get reborn again and the same thing happens over and over and over again and once you start to see how painful life can be and and the joke is we're born to die you say to yourself maybe there's a way that i can exist without being born because being born seems to be the problem creation always leads to destruction and the buddha said nirvana is unending and undying You can exist within nirvana without being born. You'll never have to die. It's an alternative, a parallel universe. And right now, all the people who have achieved nirvana are in their nirvana universe. And here we are in samsara, the place where birth and death exists, the place where creation and destruction exists, the place filled with suffering. And yet we think it's so wonderful to go to Disneyland. The happiest place on earth. $78. Mm-hmm. How cool is that? I think it's like $88. 90. Is it 88 now? Uh, it's becoming less happy for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs>